Hi, I'm Peter Harrington, and you're listening to Policy and Pandemics, a podcast from OPM giving you a unique look into the COVID-19 crisis around the world. Welcome to episode four of Policy and Pandemics. We missed a week last week due to the holiday, but we're glad to be back. In the last episode, I spoke to Dr. Beth Engelbrecht, who is helping lead the COVID health response in the Western Cape province of South Africa. It was a fascinating discussion, especially where she highlighted the importance of human relationships to the crisis response and the importance of leadership, especially people at different levels of the response exercising leadership. In this episode, we're picking up on that crisis leadership theme, amongst others. And to do that, I'm delighted to have as our guest none other than Matt Andrews, who is the Edward S. Mason Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Amongst other things, Matt leads the Building State Capability Program at Harvard and is the author of countless papers and books on development. On a personal note, Matt, you're a former professor of mine, former colleague, as well as a friend and mentor, so it's lovely to have you join. Welcome and thank you for being our guest. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. Matt, to start us off, most listeners of this podcast will be very familiar with you and your work. But for anyone who doesn't know you, can you say a bit about what you teach at Harvard and your work around the world? Sure. So um, it's great to be with you. And uh, my, my background is really starting in government in South Africa in the 1990s. I worked uh, in a um, provincial ministry of finance. And then I, uh, then, then I spent some time at the World Bank. And I'm really interested in how governments get things done. And I'm not interested in that just in terms of kind of delivering. I'm interested in the capability that is required to identify uh, policy problems, to find uh, workable, contextually fitted and relevant solutions, um, and to develop the capabilities in government. The work that I do at the Kennedy School involves teaching classes that essentially reflect these interests and also running the building state capability program where we do action research in governments around the world to try and learn um, how a a more problem-driven approach um, can work in difficult public sector contexts. The building state capability program has a blog um, and in early March around the time that COVID was really gathering pace you started writing a blog series there on the theme of public leadership in crisis, which I think you've done about 20 installments of that now. What motivated you or spurred you to start that blog and what were you trying to get across with it? I think the first thing that happened was that some of my ex-students who found themselves thrust into roles related to the COVID response started getting hold of me and saying, "Um, we're not prepared for this. And I thought to myself, well, you know, one of the things that we assume is that many of many 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 challenges occur in the development process and in governance that people aren't prepared for because because the things are uns- have not been seen before and because they're complex and because we haven't navigated them and and as part of our research one of the things we observe is those are precisely the things that governments kind of really struggle with i teach that you know there are ways of actually addressing things that you're not prepared for and 
you can't address those things with the tools that you use to address things that you are prepared for. You have to have different tools. And those different tools relate to leadership, relate to um, the technical process of finding solutions. They relate to things about organizing. They relate to communication. There's a different toolbox that you need to dip into. And so I think that that's kind of why people started to get hold of me. And um, it created an opportunity to really share some of those ideas Matt, I gather you've been speaking to quite a few of your former students, people you've worked with or taught uh, over the years who are now in government around the world. You've been speaking to them as this COVID crisis has unfolded. What are some of the big problems and challenges that, that you've been hearing from them that they're facing? And what are some of the big themes around crisis leadership and about how governments need to get organized to, to tackle this and respond to this? I think some of the themes are um, outward facing. And what I mean is that people in government realize that the, the, the crisis in, in all of its uh, forms, and I'll get to that in a second, requires an interaction with citizens that many governments don't have. And what I mean by that is that many governments, I think, um, have, have almost insulated them from, from their citizens and they engage with their citizens around elections and they engage, engage in communication that is often about spin and it's often about kind of winning an election, et cetera, et cetera. And now they find that there are these very complex challenges where they need, the, they need to mobilize the behavior of citizens in, in, in a very specific way. And I think that this has been a big challenge for many governments because they've now had to communicate with citizens in a different way. And it's not about just kind of telling citizens what they want to hear. And it's not about just getting citizens to vote for them. They actually have to inform citizens uh, about behavioral changes and they have to build trust with citizens so that citizens actually do those things. And I think in some countries that's been very, very difficult. And that's kind of the outward facing. The, the more inward facing within government is how do, you, how do you get information? How do you mobilize that information, use that information, translate that information into ideas that where the information about what's going on is, um, is, is, is partial at best um, and where uh, you're going to make a lot of mistakes? Um, how do you learn on the go? Um, has been, I think, one of the big things that people have struggled with. And I think that's why, when I, you know, when I said earlier, people said, but we're not ready for this. The first response is, you know, we don't have the answer. And it's like, okay, now you need to be comfortable with not having the answer. The question is, how do you find answers as you move along? And the big challenge when you, when you start thinking in this way is that you move from a control orientation, which many governments have, to, to more of a flexible uh, coordination orientation. So you're not telling people what to do and then just making sure that they follow through. What you're doing is you are bringing people together and you are mobilizing their creativity, allowing them to do things, learning from them and allowing them to learn from each other en masse, um, and then translating what it is that you learn into, into ideas. And this specific crisis has been I think so difficult because you're not doing this on just one front, right? This isn't just a public health crisis. This is also an economic crisis. It's also a social crisis. And so you're doing this on many, many fronts at one time, and you're dealing with all of this ambiguity, all of this uncertainty. Um, and, and, and for that to happen, you have to create this kind of more flexible organizational machine. Um, and that's been really challenging for many governments.
it's really interesting um, this idea of transitioning or shifting from a control orientation to what you call the coordination orientation um, this idea of dispersed and distributed leadership it sounds like a better um, model for tackling an extremely complex crisis what makes it difficult what gets in the way or hinders that transition in a crisis like this you know what makes it difficult for governments to um, to make that transition or is it easy no I think that's actually quite difficult you know the, the main thing that makes it difficult is that governments are typically not organized like this and whenever you're asking people to do things that they're not typically they don't typically do it's always going to be hard um, because you're not dealing with kind of just shifting one person you're requiring people, you know, if you think about what a government is, a government is generally just a, an, 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 a set of hierarchies, right? You've got the hierarchy in the Ministry of Education, the hierarchy in the Ministry of Health, et cetera, et cetera. And you have people at the top who make strategic decisions, and then people who at different levels who enforce those decisions in some ways. And these organizations have existed in this hierarchical way for, for many decades in most countries. And, you know, all you have to do is watch one episode of Yes Minister to see that these things calcify and they develop their own kind of character and their own personality. And now you're going into them and you're saying, okay, the people at the top, now you guys have actually got to start um, empowering your people more than you have before. And that's not what they've done. You actually have to empower them. You have to inspire them. Um, I saw uh, an interview with uh, General Stanley McChrystal, um, uh, who I think was the, the former... Um, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who said, in a crisis, you don't lead your team. In a crisis, you facilitate for your team. Your team leads and you just allow them. It's a very different role for a minister or a director general um, to be taking. But it's not only them that have the challenge, it's the people at the different levels. You know, When you work in governments, you find that people who are mid-level employees, et cetera, are, are not gigantic risk takers. They aren't the ones who say, you know, we're going to step out and we're going to try something new. So you're going into an organization, you're saying at the top, flatten yourself out, empower your people and let them move. And then you're going to the people at the bottom and in the middle and you're saying to them, we want you to actually do things that are creative, that are experimental, that, that might fail and it's, and it's going to be okay. And they're saying, mm, we don't believe you. You know, that's not what we've seen in the past. So all of these organizational problems kind of manifest um, in, in, in terms of the kind of behavioral expectations people have for their jobs. But also, you know, they don't have the tools and the mechanisms and the processes to do these kinds of things. It's a different kind of delegation. It's a different type of flow of information. It requires much more regular action, much, much more regular reflection, much more regular feedback. Um, and, and even those kind of technical systems don't exist. Now, the technical systems, I think, are easier to put in place than the behavioral uh, shifts are to make, but you need to have both of those together. And I think what you see in many places is, and this is not just in the COVID response, but in many crises, there is often a delayed response. You know, even you and I have spoken quite a bit about the response in, um, in, in to Ebola in Liberia. And, and it's, it's, it, at the end, it was a great story because they came up with this kind of model that was more flexible. But, you know, Ebola started in late 2013, and only in August 2014 did they shift and create this model. So yeah. it took them quite a while of still trying to do it in the old model before they realized, hey, it doesn't work. And that's kind of just a reflection of, I think, also people trying to, trying to do it within the model that they have. 
And mm. I think that we are still in that place in most governments, to be honest. I think that we are now four or five months into this for most governments. And I, I have not seen many, many governments make the shift towards these more, uh, these flatter structures. The ones that have, I think, are, are, are way ahead of the curve. But a lot of the others are still going through a lot of the pain where things are still being done in stovepipes. You still don't have sharing of information. And unfortunately, I think that many places have to recognize the weaknesses and the failures of this before they make that shift. And we still aren't there in some places. What about the individual level of these leadership challenges? Clearly, there are cultural and structural factors across governments that create resistance to this more agile and adaptive model of crisis management. But when you're talking to leaders around the world, giving advice and support, what do you hear going through their minds? What do you think are the big resistance factors at the individual level? The first thing that I would say, and I think when I started the blog post, I built on some of the work by Nancy Kane, who I like a lot, who is a historian um, at the business school here at Harvard. And Nancy has written some work on um, courage. And, um, and the first blog post was essentially to say to people, you need to know what your source of courage is right now. Because I think that there is a certain amount of fear. I think there's a certain amount of fear of leaders to say, I don't know what's going on, I'm going to fail. And I think, you know, the people who are really just motivated by getting political support are saying, this is going to hurt me, I'm not going to get reelected. The ones who actually genuinely care for their people, their citizens are saying, if I fail now, then, then it really costs my country something. And I think sometimes we forget this, that there are, in my experience, the, the more people I work with genuinely feel that they're there for a purpose. They genuinely feel that they're there to serve their citizens. And I think that when you face a crisis like this, because you have no control, you don't know what's going on. I think there is a genuine feeling like I've been elected for this and I don't know what to do. What if I let my people down? And so, you know, one of the things that I think is you have to say to people, tap into your purpose. Why are you here? Why have you decided to serve? Reawaken that, 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 that motivation and that service. Find people around you who believe that with you. Um, and, and then take courage. And take enough courage that you are willing to, to make mistakes on behalf of the thing that you care about. This is a time of risk. The next set of things that I think you have to think about is what are the biases that those people are going to have? What are they going to have about themselves? What are they going to have about their decisions and about the people around them? So for instance, you know, and this is where, you know, behavioral psychology is very, very important is to say to people, as a leader, you probably are going to have a bias here to think of the current crisis um, based on things that you've seen in the past. And I think that you could see in quite a few Western countries where SARS and MERS did not hit them, some of the initial narratives about this were, well, it's just the flu, or it's SARS or MERS again, and you know SARS or MERS didn't come here. You asked about places where this, this, this has worked. You know, it's not surprising that it's Singapore, it's Taiwan, and South Korea. All three of those places were heavily hit by SARS. The other one that's interesting is Bahrain. Bahrain has been very effective. Um, now, now, no place has, has, has done, done perfectly. So let's, you know, let me just kind of have a caveat with that. But um, Bahrain was heavily hit by MERS. The others were heavily hit by SARS. And I think when they heard that there was a thing going on in China, they basically sent their people to find out because they said, we don't want to be biased. We want, don't want to be caught 
um, unawares. And I think that that's where I, I think I heard some people say the blog helped them think about maybe some of the, the ambiguous parts of their job, like this idea of, you know, you, you need to be responsible for the response, but you need to release other people to find out how to make it work. Those two things don't look like they jive together very well until you get into them. Um, and and they were, because they don't jive well, well together in your mind, they almost seem a little counterintuitive they require leaders to move into a fairly ambiguous place in how they actually take control of the organizations or coordinate. And I think that's a big challenge. You mentioned a few countries there. So Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, and, and also Bahrain as examples of places that have handled this quite well. What is it in particular they have got right, would you say, beyond the institutional experience that was built around SARS and MERS? Are there other things that they've got right what are some of the big pitfalls that you've seen or mistakes that you've seen in other places? So I think, look, the first thing I'd say about those places, you know, some people would say, well, they were prepared. And I'm like, actually, I don't think anyone was really prepared for them, this, including them, because this isn't SARS or MERS. This is different. And you can see it in Singapore because Singapore has, all of these places have had difficulties, right? I mean, Singapore mm. and South Korea in particular in trying to reopen, they've made mistakes. Like things, things haven't worked out well. Something that everyone should see is even the countries that are doing kind of what I would say is maybe best in class right now. And you might want to include a Germany in this list and uh, some of the states in India. I think you, you want to include in this list. It isn't one type of country, right? That's the first thing I'd say. It isn't one type of place. You've had some states in India that are developing states, developing country, you know, low capacity, et cetera, that have done well. You've had some Anglophone countries that have done well, some that have done really badly. I think that the East Asian situation stands out a little bit, possibly because of SARS and MERS. And I think the first reason why wasn't that they were ready, but I think that they responded faster. Mm. And I think that that's the key thing. You know, the, the, whenever I hear um, Western leaders saying, well, the WHO didn't call it a pandemic until March, I, I just want to put my hand up and say, why do you need them to call it a pandemic to respond to protect your citizens? The Taiwanese heard about the first case on the same day as everybody else through the WHO. And they don't have the best relationships with China, but they had their own CDC team in China examining the Wuhan uh, epidemic within a week. They came straight back within a week and they stopped all of the flights from Wuhan and they developed a testing facility at the airport um, so that they could manage it. Um, so it, I think... It, responding is important. The other thing that I would say is developing a mechanism whereby you can learn rapidly is vital. And it's where I found Singapore in particular very fascinating, is their strategy from the beginning was, here's what we understand, here's what we try and given what we understand, here's what we don't understand. If we find that we get new information, we may change what we do. And even when they opened up, you know, and some people were saying, oh, Singapore thinks they're doing so great, but now they've opened up and they've got this problem in, um, in the hostels related to the manufacturing sector. They obviously didn't know what they were doing. Well, actually, they thought that that would become a problem or might become a problem. They were testing in that place. When it became a hotspot, they were testing, they were tracing, um, and they were um, putting people into isolation so that they could essentially keep it there. So they, they created a mechanism whereby they had very tight feedback loops and they allowed themselves to learn from the experiments. 
Bahrain had a very interesting way of closing things down. They closed things down for two weeks and then they opened them up. And when they opened them up, they were ready to see where in our economy are we having hotspots so that the next time they closed down, they didn't have to close everyone down and they could learn as they go along. So I think that developing a learning mechanism is super, super important. I think the other thing, Pete, that I would say with, with the countries where things have gone well is I think that you've found you've had a real humility of leadership, meaning that your leaders have taken responsibility. They have engaged with people around them. They've been open to lots of different ideas. They, at the end of the day, have said, it is my leadership. It is my decision. I am the one who's responsible. But they haven't insisted on their way or the highway. They've not been brash. They've not jumped towards solutions. They've really built trust with the people around them. They've taken responsibility, but they've also kind of quietly um, involved lots of people in that process. And I think that I think these are very important um, um, aspects of leadership. You mentioned uh, Nancy Kane earlier, who I think she speaks about the difference between leadership based on I and leadership based on thou, where thou is the sort of public good or the worthy mission. In your writing, you've mentioned a few leaders who have set a high standard and especially ones who have communicated effectively during COVID. What do you see as the sort of hallmarks of really good crisis communication by leaders? So, you know, the first thing I would say, Peter, is something that I can't really say I know for sure because I don't know what is in their mind and I'm not really speaking to them about their strategy. I think that the strategy and the approach and the goal of their communication has not always been to be right, but it's been to build trust. Mm. And, and so I would say, I think it's, it's almost like when they're sitting down and they're saying, we're going to be communicating, how often are we communicating? What does the message look like? What do we say? How do we stand? How do we sit? Where do we put our hands? How do we, uh, how, how do we, uh, how do we use our voice? Mm. I think that, that they basically saying, how do we build trust? How do we get people to follow us? How do we build trust? Someone said to me, do you need to be charismatic to, to, to lead in this way? And I said, I don't think so at all. Now, as I say that, I, I'm thinking about the governor of New York and a lot of people really like his, um, his leadership in this period of time. And I think he is charismatic. At the same time, he sits behind a table, right? And, and most, of, most of his communication is going through PowerPoints and reflecting on data and, and, and taking responsibility for, for what's going wrong and what's going right. You know, I saw a, a, a news report today to say people love Governor Cuomo, but he made so many mistakes and they go through his whole list of mistakes. And, and I've been watching him talk because I'm interested in learning how people communicate. And the first thing I would say is I've literally heard him acknowledge those mistakes. I've literally heard him say, we started too late. I didn't see this coming. Um, when, the, when the mayor wanted to close down the city of New York, I was the one who said, don't do it. And, you know, someone said to him, would you say you were, you know, how would you, you classify your leadership, successful or not? And he said, I've just tried my best. And there's mm. something about humility that is very powerful. There's something about admitting that you've done things wrong. It's the same as when I have seen, um, you know, the, the prime minister of Singapore. He says, you know, here are the things we've done right, here are the things we've done wrong. He explains things to people. And, and this is something I think that is important is you need to treat your citizens as if they are um, decision-making individuals who matter, right? Show them respect. Some people have said the lessons are that you want the, the experts talking and not the politicians, et cetera. And I'm like, 
I've seen a mixture of that. I've seen some cases where the politicians have stood behind the experts and they've allowed the experts to talk because they thought, you know, the experts are going to be more trusted, perhaps, or their voices. Mm-hmm. And some, are, some I've seen the politicians actually lead those expert narratives. And I don't actually think it matters which one it is. It does matter, though, that if the politician is the one leading the conversation, it's not a political conversation. It's, it's, it's different. And, and I, the last thing I'd say is I, I really think that when people see that their political leaders are taking responsibility, and where they see that political leaders are both professional and human, that it matters. You need to have both. They need to trust that, you, that you're looking at data, that you really are getting the right professionals, but they also need to trust that you have skin in the game and you know, you're also worried about your kids, you're worried about your parents, you're worried about your friends, and, and, and that part of your motivation is, is, is that you are a human being in this. And I think that that is something that is very important uh, from a communications perspective. Looking a bit more at the policy side of things, one of the things that's been really striking to me about the response to COVID around the world has been the uniformity of measures put in place in vastly different contexts. And matching solutions to context is a massive part of your work. What do you think has been driving that uniformity? And do leaders and governments need to be more nuanced and targeted in their response? When countries are copying other countries, I think there's often a bunch of reasons. And one of them, which I think is seriously at play here, is it, it, it genuinely seemed to me that at the beginning, at least, nobody really knew what to do about this. You know, it seemed that people were very concerned that, um, it, it, that this thing is just going to overwhelm the health sector. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't understand the virus. So really, the only thing we can do is essentially just close everything down. And I think, I think to understand that is, is important, is, is sometimes you look around and, and you say, well, it's not as if there were 10 other bright ideas. I do think at the beginning, though, there were people saying you could shut things down in different ways. And so the idea of shutting down parts of your economy, learning about that as you go along, shutting down for in, in a kind of a staggered way, one week on, one week off, I think those ideas were coming out. I did some work with um, Asim Khwaja and some of the folks uh, at the Kennedy School at the Evidence for Policy Design Group on uh, very early on creating some idea of classifying regions or classifying sectors based on risk factors. So essentially, what's the risk of getting the disease? Um, There were people thinking about this at the beginning, and really, I don't think many of them were listened to. I wonder if they weren't listened to because people thought, you know, what you're talking about is a more nuanced approach. Do we know enough to be nuanced? I don't know. I think the other argument was, um, you know, if, if, if we don't do what the others do and it turns out to be a catastrophe, yeah, that's completely on us. So I think that it's, it's, it was a fairly defensive move, Pete, a fairly defensive move, a conservative defensive move. I think that there were a lot of things that should have been thought about, not only what are the other opportunities, which is better understanding the risk profile of things and making a shutdown based on risk, but also in developing countries, better appreciating what the costs were on the other side and what the limiting factors were. Um, and, and, and thinking more carefully about, you know, what does a shutdown mean? What does a stay at home order mean um, for people who don't have homes? What does a shutdown mean for people who, who can't shut down, right? Um, you know, the pictures even in parts of India of, of, um, of workers having to, you know, en masse 
um, traverse you know hundreds and hundreds of, of, of kilometers to to leave their places of work um, just showed that there was just a lot that was not thought out in many places yeah. um, and 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 I think I, I, I think that because the crisis is not over right because I think everyone agrees we are really maybe at the end of the first act of this, but there are at least a number of acts and we're going to be in this for, I would say, a year, two years minimum. I do think that there is an opportunity now for governments to start rethinking how they organize themselves, to learn some of the lessons about where they've done well and where they haven't in terms of leadership, and to also start to think about tailoring the next steps to their to their context and i think that's an important message i'd say is no matter what mistakes you made in the first act all of the things that you need to do you can still do now right you can't recover what you've done but but this crisis is still here there's still uncertainty we still need to learn we still need to tailor we still need to build trust and if you haven't done it well so far just start doing it now and, and I would say that, you know, that, that pertains also to the kind of strategies, the stay-at-home orders, et cetera. The way in which countries open up now, governments need to be listening more to their people than they are just copying others. And when they are looking at others, they need to be asking how they differ from each other, not just how they are similar to each other. That's it for part one of this extended interview with Matt Andrews. In part two, which will be out in the coming days, I talk to Matt about the next chapters of this crisis, the opportunities for countries to transform themselves, and how COVID could reshape the aid sector as well. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Policy and Pandemics. A big thank you to our producer, Catherine Valentine, and our editor, Emmy Fairburn. You can get all our podcasts, as well as blogs, papers, and much more at opml.co.uk and find us on Twitter at OPM Global. Until next time, stay safe.